Welcome everyone to episode 105, Careers in Science. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? You're going to need to define over there, because I'll tell you, I'm not even over where I was. I'm in Europe right now. I was just in Budapest, and I'm in Vienna living it up. I'm actually here for work and a conference. But, you know, the thing I'm most excited about, Kiki, is that I get to talk to you today. And, Aww. you know, you're one of my favorite people, and I admire you as someone who's lived in science and then, you know, stepped kind of outside of science but stayed close. You're looking in on it. You're still contributing to, uh, you know, the advancement of knowledge, except in a different way. And I'm excited to talk about that with you today. Are you excited? I don't know. You're buttering me up quite a bit there (laughs) from halfway around the world. So you're making me a little nervous about how today's going to go down, but I'm excited. I'm excited. It's going to go good. All right. So let's get down to business and I'll tell you guys what we're talking about here. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources there. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that you can get new episodes downloaded automatically to your phone. We do have a cool show today, and in 2018, we're going to try and do this a lot more. Dalen, myself, and Stem Cell Technologies are really, really big on supporting young scientists, and one thing we want to do more of is talk about careers in science and offer a lot of advice, discussion, and resources around that topic. And so, you know, we talk to stem cell scientists a lot, but one thing that we want to do beyond that is to bring in more guests who've pursued non-traditional careers in science. And to kick off this concept on today's show, Dr. Daylon James, my partner in crime on the other side of the world this week, is going to interview me, (laughs) Dr. Kiki Sanford, about my career path in science and how I strangely found myself where I am today in the field of science communications. And we are really looking forward to these segments and episodes. And of course, I get to talk about myself today. So that's going to be awesome. (laughs) Uh, I hate talking about myself. I do too. too. (laughs) That's why I'm usually the interviewer, not the interviewee. Not today, babe. Yeah. Anyway, for you out there, if you have any ideas or suggestions around this kind of show, let us know on social media or by email. Let us know. Are there people we should be interviewing or thinking about talking to who have taken non-traditional paths? But before we get into that, it's time for the roundup. What do you say, Dalen? Yes, yes. I'm just going to get the roundup over with because I want to talk to you, girl. Let's do it. first. As scientists helping scientists, stem cell technologies offers several resources to help scientists stay current and connected with their fields, including this podcast and the Connects on Science newsletters. This week, stem cells would like to introduce a new initiative created by anyone interested in life science research in the greater Boston area, the Science in the City social media channels. Find out about cutting edge research, meet award winning scientists, and discover life science events taking place in and around Boston. Follow at Science in Boston on Twitter or Facebook 
and stay connected. That's at science in Boston on Twitter or Facebook. All right, Kiki, let's round it up. Why don't you start off with some general interest science stories? I have something that is of general interest, definitely to scientists, but uh, should be of interest to anybody who's really interested in the future of our country and the competitiveness of our uh, innovative nature, according to editorial written in Nature. And if you go look up the topic of tax cuts, grad students on Google, you will find articles on every major news outlet on this topic. There is a clause in the new tax bill that has just as of yesterday been passed by the United States House of Representatives that would require students to report tuition fee waivers as taxable income. This would move students into higher tax brackets. A student who, as a graduate student, maybe is making $20,000 or less per year in actual income, at some place like Boston, MIT, for instance, uh, their tuition waiver could be worth as much as $50,000 a year. And if that were to be reported as taxable income, that could lead to an additional $10,000 in taxes that students who are almost at the poverty level would be responsible for. This will change the priorities of students. They'll have to prioritize education versus healthcare. They'll have to decide whether or not they can even afford to go to school in a place like Boston, New York City, San Francisco, where the costs of living are very high. So in the United States, according to Department of Education's latest data, from 2011 to 2012, more than half of graduate students make less than $20,000 a year. And the federal poverty line is $12,060 for a single person living without children. Graduate student stipends at the U.S. National Institute of Health are capped at $23,844. And that's not adjusted for the cost of living. So 60% of the 145,000 students who get tuition reductions each year are working in STEM fields. And the amount of money that the government would get back as a result of these tax cuts is really not going to put much of a dent into the national debt, but it will affect the decisions made by young scientists and the scientific producers of the future. So, passed yesterday in the House, the Senate still has to make up its mind and uh, debate these issues, but this kind of a prospect is just another cut, another hit to our country prioritizing our competitiveness in the future in the tech and science industries. I'm disgusted. I mean, <laughs> listen, you could tax one of these super billionaires at a rate that we all pay instead of whatever 15%, you could tax one of them or take their hidden income in the Panama Papers or Paradise Papers, and it would probably account for every single grad student. They would pay all that tax. What are you trying to get money from these people for? They have no money. And they're the smart ones. And they're the ones that say, you know what, instead of going into finance, I'm going to go and try and do something I'm interested in and try and make something new instead of moving money. And we're going to take their money? Come on. This editorial in Nature does point out that the goal is probably not to discourage graduate study or undermine science. 
The goal of the bill is to maintain revenue while lowering taxes on businesses. And as businesses, universities are one of the targets. But instead, it's this is just a, the way that they're approaching it is going to cause low to middle income students to take on a lot of that burden. It's going to leave education, especially graduate education, to those who can afford it, to the high income, to the elite who are already elite. It's going to take this opportunity away from so many people. And there are smart minds at all levels of the financial spectrum. They should all be allowed the opportunity to become a part of the country's entrepreneurial and innovative future. It's short-sighted thinking in terms of balancing the budget, which according to reports, this tax bill is not going to help balance the budget at all. Not even close. Not even, not close. even close. Yeah. It's, oh. Yeah, we all know what it is. Oh. You said all this, the party line, I know, but we all know what this is. It's the rich get richer. Yep. Oh, so I'm so angry about this and I hope all of you are. And now is the time. If you're upset about this and you want to promote innovation and entrepreneurialism in the United States and the future of our scientific, technological, engineering, and math competitiveness, contact your senators because now is the time to make your voice heard. Okay. And now doing this, talking about this, my blood pressure has gone up. <laughs> I hope it's not too high because now there's a new, a new, uh, a new report on what actually constitutes high blood pressure. New guidelines, first major update from the American Heart Association from their annual scientific sessions, published November 13th uh, in Hypertension in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. No longer is 140 over 90 considered high. Now high is 130 over 80. Uh-oh. So they are bringing down your systolic and diastolic pressures. And in order to reach that kind of a blood pressure level, people are really going to have to make even more changes to diet and exercise and potentially have to take medication to be able to decrease it that much more. Why do I feel like this is a kind of a sneaky ploy to line the pockets of the pharmaceutical companies? I'm such a cynic. You are, but I kind of am thinking the same thing as well. But in the words of Paul Welton of Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine in New Orleans, Nolens, it's very clear that lower is better. True. The updated recommendations will improve the cardiovascular health of our adult community in the United States. And so if you're not familiar with blood pressure and what that actually means, the systolic pressure, the number on the top, is how much force the blood is hitting the walls of the arteries with each time the heart beats, how much that volume of blood is pushing against the walls of the arteries. Diastolic pressure, the number on the bottom, is the resting force of the heart. So it's when it's that blood flow kind of ebbing back. So diastolic is an important number, but that systolic number is really important. I hate to say it, I'm one of those people with kind of naturally low blood pressure. Every time, <laughs> every time I go in, they're like, are you alive? <laughs> yes. That was such a humble brag. Oh, I hate to break it to you. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> Similarly, Kika, I happen to be in perfect health myself. 
<laughs> Good work there. <laughs> yeah, but it's not it's not without, you know, some challenges. The Trump administration yeah. is really putting me over. <laughs> Every day, every day, making my blood pressure go up a little bit more. Oh, goodness. And if there weren't enough reasons to make our blood pressure go up, how about an update to the 1992 World Scientists' Warning to Humanity? In 1992, 1,700 scientists, most scientific Nobel laureates who were alive at that time, were involved in this letter. It was a statement on what were considered the biggest threats to the planet and to humanity. Now, 25 years later, 15,000 scientists from 184 countries have signed an updated warning to humanity. Main dangers include climate change, population growth, deforestation, species extinction, and loss to access of clean water. And it highlights just how badly we've done at trying to solve these issues. It does give us, you know, that one nice point of, hey, ozone depletion, we, we worked on that, we we're good at that, so maybe we can, if we can stabilize the ozone layer, we can work together to take care of some of these other issues. But it does show that over the last 25 years, humans have increased in population size by 2 billion individuals. That's 35% increase. Close to 121 million hectares, 300 million acres of forest have been cut down. Dead zones in the oceans have increased by 75%. And fresh water that's available to people has gone down by 26%. These numbers are not good. Not good. Not close. Not even close. These researchers, 15,000, I want to say, state, you know, we had an increase of like 100% there, right? 1,700 scientists to 15,000? Yeah, no, it's like <laughs> every Nobel laureate living is not enough. You know, that, that, that's not enough to show consensus. We need to like put another zero on that for anyone to listen. Let's just keep adding and adding and adding. But, you know... We can always just, you know, hopefully make those problems go away. We'll just make them invisible. <laughs> Please elaborate. <laughs> Scientists at Ben Gurion University in Israel are working on creating a prototype for their invisibility cloak. And oh they're my. proving their method that makes objects invisible. Dr. Alina Karabchevsky. She's the lead scientist behind this study. She said, we showed that it is possible to bend the light around an object located on the cloak on an optical chip. The light does not interact with the object, thus resulting in the chip's invisibility. Were you going for like a Harry Potter accent? There? I don't was know. Like I, I started McGonagall? out. I know I started out with an accent and then I realized it wasn't going the right direction that I wanted it to. And so I just kind of yeah. stopped. I, it. I was into it. <laughs> I've got to use my accent. <laughs> Whatever accent that is. Whichever, however it comes out. So they reported in Nature Scientific Reports and showed how they could put an object, like a chip or, you know, whatever they wanted to. They could put a little object on top of a surface of this cloaking material that would scatter light around it, and that makes the object invisible to the eye. But even though it's invisible to the eye, infrared and radar sensors can still pick it up. This invisibility cloak idea is based on the study of metamaterials and 
path of light being deflected certain ways. Researchers have been working on it for a few years now, and it is kind of a Harry Potter-esque idea, but uh, maybe someday it will be used in alongside technologies like radar absorbing dark paint on stealth aircraft, optical camouflage, maybe cooling to prevent infrared detection, and electromagnetic wave scattering. So there are potentially lots of applications to this. I believe it. I, I just think it's um, driven entirely by Harry Potter. I, I saw the, <laughs> no. those Burt's or Bot's Every Flavor Beans. Remember those? That first they made those, and now they're jumping right to the invisibility cloak. I mm -hmm. think you know it's pretty ambitious, but it's also pretty pretty cool. I can't wait to see how it works out. Maybe it'll give me the uh, means of hiding from all my <laughs> obligations and responsibilities. Yes, it's better than a blanket. Just better than a plain old blanket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm using now. I just hide. Uh, either that or yeah. under the bed. But, you right. know, it's just not, not so effective. You can't, you can't find me here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that does it for me. What do you have in the stem cell world? I got some stem cell stories. Some about the brain or the potential to understand neurogenesis a bit better. So there's a team of researchers at the Cluster of Excellence, CCADS, at C-E-C-A-D. They've now found an efficient way to produce neurons from pluripotent stem cells. Yeah, I know. People have been making neurons from pluripotent stem cells for a long time, but this is much, 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 another much more efficient. The research was just published in Nature Communication. So Neuronal differentiation protocols are usually pretty expensive, and they generate a mixture of neuronal cells as well as other non-neural cell types. And by knocking down a single gene, this team, led by David Vilches, was able to produce neurons with, listen to this, 100% efficiency. I have a bit of doubts about 100%. 100%? Yeah, like every single cell. Right? Uh, I guess that's the power <laughs> of... You know, typically what they do is enforced expression. And I can understand that you express one gene and that's like a master factor that overrides everything. But this is strange because it's getting rid of this one gene using CRISPR. So in natural conditions, yeah. this factor, which is called CSDE1, prevents differentiation and keeps the cells in a pluripotent state. But when you knock it down, hey, they can go neural with 100% efficiency for the study human embryonic stem cells as well as induced pluripotent stem cells and mouse stem cells were used and by using this new approach it could be possible to facilitate the generation of neurons from samples of different patients and study disease or test pharmaceuticals again in an economical way without having to use these expensive neural differentiation protocols which means you can scale up and put them in these massive libraries even though these results are a step to clinical application, there's still a long way to go, though, we should say. That's according to David Vilches, quote, new neurons from the dish could be important for studying diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, or Huntington's, but we're still at the starting point of this exciting research. Nevertheless, I think mechanistically it's important to realize that there's other routes to getting the tissues we want. Sometimes it's not always about overloading the cells with this non-physiological influence, but it might be more efficient to just inhibit a factor. If you could just knock something down, that might be the key. And it's much easier to break the system than it is to supplement it, at least in a clinical context, using mm -hmm. pharmaceutical compounds and pharmacological approaches. So I think this is a big deal because, you know, it's one of those things where we're moving into a realm of like high throughput, a scale that's amenable to industrial application. So 
Good for you guys over there. You did it. C-S-D-E-1. See you later. Hello, neurons. I mean, they must be using one of the updated versions of CRISPR to be able to get the efficiency levels that they're getting. I mean, 100% efficiency, that's pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, it's strong. I mean, to be fair, I think in this case, what you're talking about is generating a, a clone that's knocked down and then differentiating yeah. the, the clonal outgrowth of that. But uh, as you allude to, that's not something that we could do in a clinic. We need to actually yeah. target the whole group. So, yes, like uh, was said by David Bilches, it's just a step along the way, but, you know, give us some insight into a novel approach. So, again, kudos. <laughs> Next, more differentiation, more neural. Because, you know, the real problem, it seems, these days is our brains... As you can imagine, looking at our administration, the blood-brain barrier, though, we're talking about something that's not quite about how smart you are. This is something that's really important in terms of separating the brain, which is really sensitive, from the body, the circulation of the body, which is, you know, there's a lot of things that go into circulation that you want to keep out of the brain. The blood-brain barrier is the last stop on the way to the brain. It's almost like a shield of cells that keeps toxins and other bad agents that may be in circulation from gaining access to, you know, the brain, which pretty much controls the whole thing. So you want to do that. An essential anatomical structure, the, the barrier is, it's the brain's first and most comprehensive line of defense. But in addition to protecting the brain, it also involves in disease and effectively blocks many of the small molecule drugs that might make effective therapies for a host of neurological conditions, including such things as stroke, trauma, and cancer. So it's not just about keeping things out of the brain, but if we want to deliver therapeutics, let's say, you know, we always talk about glio, which is, you know, glioblastoma, which is a devastating cancer. And part of the problem there is that you can't really target the cancer with some of these drugs or other therapeutics and biologics because of the blood-brain barrier. So rudimentary models of the barrier have been created in the laboratory dish using human stem cells, you know, going on about six, seven years, I think it was first done in Nature Biotechnology by this same group. But these models have depended on mixing a cocktail of cell types to elicit the complex chemical interplay that directs blank state stem cells to become the endothelial cells that make up the blood-brain barrier. So you see, you have to grow these cells and differentiate them in complex with other neural cells. And as we were talking about in the previous study, that's not necessarily amenable to industrial scale. But in a report published just this last week in Science Advances, Researchers from the University of Wisconsin-Madison detailed a defined step-by-step -step process to make a more exact mimic of the human blood-brain barrier in the laboratory dish. The new model will permit more robust exploration of these cells, their properties, and how scientists might circumvent the barrier for therapeutic purposes. So this was done by the same group at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Sean Palachuk leads the group, and they've been really pioneering this approach. And by identifying the specific chemical molecules that can chaperone the cells through the various stages of development to become the brain endothelial cells, the Wisconsin team, in effect, has provided a recipe to standardize making these cells in quantities that are useful for research and things like high-throughput drug screens. This is a quote from Dr. Schuster, who is a leader in the study, using induced cells, adult cells from patients, that is iPS cells, parenthetically, which are reprogrammed to an embryonic stem cell-like state will also allow researchers to better understand the etiology and progression of a variety of neurological disorders. Things like infections of the brain and multiple sclerosis may be better understood at their outset. And this is something that's really important because to see 
how these diseases begin is really the key to treating them or precluding them ever coming to a, a state where they're pathological. So having a, a model in vitro allows you to see the pre-disease state and the mechanism perhaps by which that disease is mediated by a defect or the lack of blood-brain barrier activity. So, you know, we're in the brain, we're making neurons better, and now we're making also the accessory cells within the brain, in this case endothelial cells, that are really important to the function. So another great addition to his repertoire here, Sean Palachek's group, really refining their methods for creating this important cell-based model of neurological disease and its origins. Kiki, how's your brain? <laughs> I hope my brain's great. I've got the skull and blood-brain barrier in the way, so I can't really look at it. <laughs> I'm going to look into your brain in about 10 minutes, girl, oh, so you my better goodness. get ready. I'm going to get it right. I'm just going to, right now, I'm, I'm listening to you talk. It's, it's, make, it's yeah, making it all well, better. <laughs> I'm putting you to sleep. Just tell the truth. Sleep no, is I good love, for your brain. I'm a brain person. I love the blood-brain barrier. Like I, Hang I, on. Hang on. We'll get there. This study, oh. the neuron study, I am all ears here. All right. All right. Well, you can share your brain interest with me in just a minute. Uh, but first, I'm going to tell you about cardiac research in space. Wow. Oh, my. I don't know how I feel about this, but it's cool. I can tell you that much. Researchers at Emory University School of Medicine and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta have been using space simulation machines to enhance the ability of pluripotent stem cells to turn into cardiac muscle cells. Now they, or the cells they've carefully cultured at least, will get the chance to try the real thing on the International Space Station. Can you believe this, Kiki? They're differentiating stem cells in space. I want to do that. You have to go to space to do that. Yeah, I can't. No. I can't. I'm not ready to be an astronaut. I just don't have the physique, I'm afraid. But, you know, chun Hu Zhu, PhD, Kevin Mahler, MD, Ragish Jha, PhD, and colleagues have been awarded a two-year grant from the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space to support their work. Now, don't get it twisted. These scientists aren't going to space to conduct the research. If only, you could have a lot more people getting into stem cell science. But they kind of created this system to model microgravity. So let me elaborate. Stem cell-derived cardiac muscle cells, they've been used to treat heart failure in animal models. You know, it's a very promising therapy for treating both acute and chronic elements of heart disease. They've also been used to study inherited diseases, genetic diseases, using induced pluripotent stem cells. And to quote Dr. Zhu, Chen Yu Zhu, we think that what we learn from the cells in space will help in optimizing the generation of clinically relevant cardiac muscle cells on Earth. Hmm. On Earth, research associate Jia uses a random positioning machine which can provide a, a simulation of the microgravity conditions found in space. Hmm. The machine periodically shifts cells so they never get used to one direction being down. Mm -hmm. You ever seen those planes where they go and they go up and down and it's like you're in space, you're floating? What is it called? The Vomit Comet, I think is the, yes. <laughs> the nickname yes. of that plane. <laughs> Very good. Wow. I never would have come up with that. Mm -hmm. So with this machine, Ja and Zhu show that they can produce cardiac muscle cells with five times the yield of conventional cell culture. These results were just published in Scientific Reports in 2016. Now, here's my take on this. I mean, the whole periodic shifting, random positioning approach, I think it's maybe a little bit specious to liken that to the vomit comet in terms of creating microgravity. But yeah. I have to say, at least in terms of like hypothesis generation, it's a nice 
you know, preliminary study. I think if I wrote a grant that was like, we're going to do this and then we're going to do that preliminary, we have this preliminary evidence and then we propose specific game one, we're going to go to space and do this again and see if it works. I think I would get yeah. laughed out of the room for being a bit too ambitious, but you can't fault these guys for their ambition and you actually have to applaud them. I can't wait to see how it works out. Kiki, I mean, I don't know. I'd love to hear your opinion on cardiac myocytes in space. <laughs> well, we do know that astronauts come back from space with a bunch of different health problems, and a lot of them are muscularly related. There's muscular atrophy. And if we are potentially going to be a spacefaring people at some point in time, we're going to have babies in space. And if we're going to have babies in space, what does that mean for their development? Are they going to have little stunted hearts <laughs> that shorten their lifespan? Are they going to be unhealthy as a result? Will they never be able to return to Earth? So there's that question for just, you know, the big futuristic thinking. But then there's also the question of developmentally. What is it that makes these heart cells beat the way they do? What is it the way that makes them organize the way they do? What is it that makes them grow the way that they do? And we, there's still a lot to learn. And space and microgravity can help us learn just how things work a little bit more better. More better. <laughs> more better. Yeah. This is why I love you, Kiki. You just totally explained the rationale and made me feel like a child. I get it now. That's <laughs> why they're going to space. Oh, well, I take it back. Good for these guys. They did it. And good for you. For explaining it to me. I'm a, I'm a real simp. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get away from my own shame, I'm going to move on. A team of researchers from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Coimbra, led by Dr. Lino Ferreira, MIT Portugal program, faculty and researcher at the Center for Neuroscience and Cell Biology in collaboration with Robert Langer's lab at MIT in USA. There's MIT in Portugal, apparently, too. And they cross the Atlantic, and with the Robert Langer Lab, they're collaborating. They've developed a new technology which is promising for understanding and treatment of ischemic diseases, broadly speaking, ischemic diseases. These results were just published in Nature Communication. So ischemic diseases such as stroke, heart attack, limb ischemia as a result of like diabetes, for example, they're all caused by the obstruction of blood vessels, preventing blood flow to the tissue, leading to, you know death of those tissues and irreversible damage or death, you know, either one is not good. Stem cells might be used to regenerate the tissue and restore oxygen supply by forming new blood vessels. But most of the cells, when you introduce them to the site of ischemia, they die and they therefore cannot form new vessels and, you know, help restore blood flow. But this team found that by attaching a protein called vascular endothelial growth factor, commonly known as VEGF, to microscopic particles can increase the survival time of stem cells, which could be used to help the healing of tissues after injection into these ischemic regions. To understand how this protein increased the survival of the cells, the researchers checked the molecules called microRNAs, you know microRNAs, which are important for functioning cells. For the function of these endothelial cells, they found that microRNA called microRNA-17 was decreased in stem cells when they were attached to the vascular endothelial growth factor microparticles. So to mimic what this protein does, the mirror, the researchers decreased microRNA-17 in the cells and injected them into the leg muscle of animals after cutting the blood flow. They do this hind limb ischemia model where they ligate the vessel, obstructing blood flow to the leg. And when the blood flow is cut, 
the leg starts to die, obviously, mm-hmm. cause the loss of toes. You know, this is kind of like into the complications of diabetes. But the stem cells with decreased microRNA 17 were able to restore blood flow to a greater degree in the leg by pretty much, you know, engrafting and staying there longer because they don't die. So by finding a way to increase the life of these stem cells after the injection in C2 in these ischemic sites, the researchers can increase the presence of these cells and their contribution to neovessels and restoration of blood flow. And this may help and should help with the regeneration of the tissues and, you know, kind of get rid of those blockages that lead to the downstream issues. So it's another yeah. example of the Langer Lab using their vast repertoire of kind of nano microtech to improve delivery. This guy has about a billion patents. And um, now, you know, he's just <laughs> Just one more. Just one more. <laughs> Getting rich. That's fascinating. I mean, the idea that, you know, you think with blood flow being cut off, you've got the buildup of metabolites that are deleterious to cells causing apoptosis and death and there's lack of oxygen. And so it's not a healthy environment for growth, right? But then getting rid of this microRNA 17 allows, it maybe like increases the health or the stability of those micro vessels to be able to form new blood vessels to get past that. And that's just fascinating to me. I mean, that's like, yeah. we are the strong, you know? I'm not going to succumb to these negative situations. It's <laughs> pretty yeah, interesting. I think it is. It's fascinating. I think what's maybe my one critique of this story would be mechanism, because it invites so many questions. What's this thing doing? You know, microRNAs, the, the way they work is by targeting a whole suite yeah. of genes. So yeah. the downstream mechanisms uh, that may be mediating this phenomenon are myriad. And I, I think, obviously, the next steps are to kind of dissect those processes. But I'll tell you, Bob Langer doesn't care about any of that. No, he does, obviously. <laughs> but whatever he has to do to get another patent, that's where he'll put the paper out, probably make yeah. a few million, and then he'll move on to the next thing later. But, yeah. you know, good stuff. Would that potentially, because it's low oxygen, and I don't know, does microRNA-17, does that relate to cancer? Yes, you know, I think you're right. It's probably, I don't know, oh, is the answer. But I bet, I bet you're right. I bet it's something that's like, it's something that's typically... Uh, used in, in an important way to suppress aberrant growth. And, yeah. you know, when you knock that out, you lead to survival. Yeah. And I think maybe what you may be alluding to, Kiki, in your typical way, being positive, is that the breaks that can be put on cancer may be a little bit risky. You know, you may be That's exactly what I was energies. alluding to. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you always me make the negative stuff? Huh? You're a real jerk, you know, but it's true. You're right. You're right. Maybe you don't. You get a little aberrant growth as a kind of a side effect of yeah. saving the leg and then the, you have to cut it off because it becomes a tumor. Yeah. But uh, we'll get there. Like I said, this there's the a beginning. lot of downstream mechanisms. Yeah, it's just the beginning. Like most... <laughs> Novel therapies, we figure out all the bad stuff down the line, and then we move on. Yeah. Does that do it for the roundup? That's it, girl. All right. So we figured out all the bad stuff. Now we're moving on down the line. No. All right, everyone. It's time for our favorite segment, the interview. Our friends at Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce their one-stop resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments. Stem Cell's Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs. You can learn about organoid culture from the experts at Stem Cell. 
Visit stemcell.com slash discover hyphen organoids. Stemcell.com slash discover hyphen organoids. All right, Kiki, this is where I take over. You're used to doing this intro. (laughs) But it would be pretty weird if you introduced yourself. But I bet if you did, you would be, you know, a little bit too modest introduction. So let me just say. Stem Cell Podcasts and Stem Cell Technologies are very, very pleased to welcome our guest today, a luminary in science communications for our first career in science installment, the one, the only, neurophysiologist, creator, and host of This Week in Science, and of course, my co-host, partner in crime on the Stem Cell Podcast, Dr. Kiki Sanford. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Is it your first time on? In this extent, yes. (laughs) All right. Well, then we're going to have to introduce you. We have to go deep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Take me back. Take me back to the little, little girl, you know, inspired to do whatever she, you know, what were the beginnings? What were you like? What were your interests? How did you find your way to science? Give me the skinny. Yeah. So let's see. Once upon a time. (laughs) I grew up in the Central Valley of California in a big old house in the middle of a bunch of fields, running around with my dogs, chasing the chickens, and swimming in the ditches. <laughs> I was a little country girl, and yeah, I was I was always interested in a lot of things. My my parents were Really, they really pushed me to learn and do things academically. My dad read with me every night when I was little, so I was reading pretty young. And then he worked with me in the evenings on addition and subtraction and started getting me doing multiplication. Like I went into first grade knowing how to multiply, and the teachers didn't know what to do with me because <laughs> it was a little country school, and they were like, there weren't that many kids and they were just like, you're the aberration. We don't know what to do with you. And so they'd just give me a big sheet of math problems to do. And I just, for context, for yeah. those of you who don't have kids in grade school, usually in first grade, you're doing not even addition and subtraction yeah. in third grade. You just start to do multiplication tables. Yeah. So clearly Kiki was a robot. Yeah, I was, I am a robot. That's it. Yeah. Um, but I got started, I guess, making mud pies and playing outside. Like my mom was the mom who was like, go outside and play. And so I would go out and I would dig up sugar beets from the field around the house. And I'd come home with a sugar beet and say, I want to make sugar. (laughs) (laughs) And I would figure out how I would make up a plan because there was no internet back then. I would make up a plan of how to make sugar. I would love to see those plants. Oh my God, I'd pay to see it. I'm, I made a mess of the kitchen so more often than I can even count. I was also a performer, so I was always trying out for the school plays, and I was in gymnastics from a young age and doing gymnastics. And But it was interesting. There was a point uh, when I was a young girl that I think it was the social pressures where I was like, oh, I'm too smart. I shouldn't be smart. Mm. And so I need to not be smart anymore. And <laughs> I actually, like at one point, I uh, I threw a spelling bee. Oh, no. I spelled a word wrong on purpose because I didn't want to win the spelling bee and be known as that girl. Wow. 
because they were people at school were always like, oh, you always talk with such big words. Why do you use such big words? You know, I was being made fun of kind of in that way. And so the social pressures, I was like, I just want to be like everyone else. I want to, you know, by the time I was in junior high, I was like, I just want a boyfriend. I don't, you know, I want someone to like me and not make fun of me for using big words. And so I kind of let those pressures affect me for a while. Did you at least like bet money against yourself or something? I I didn't. I that wasn't that smart. Bad move. That's why you're not an economist. Right. But then, you know, I got into high school and I had some teachers that were really great teachers and were inspiring and at one point like one of the science teachers was like, "You're really good at science." You know, and I was like, "Oh, okay." And so I ended up taking like a, a a junior college science course over the summer. And then that let me take my junior year and apply it to all the performing stuff. And so I spent my junior year in high school doing like choir and band and drama and cheerleading and, <laughs> and yearbook. I didn't do anything. I, and French, I think, and then English. I think I had nothing serious my you junior sound, year. That sounds like a, a real geek to me, I'm afraid to say. I, <laughs> I, I don't think it... I don't think it helped you with the boyfriend thing, did it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe yeah, it did. I mean, yeah. you're a beautiful woman. <laughs> I had my boyfriends. I did. But then I got into, uh, I by my junior year, you know, you're applying to colleges and stuff. And then I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I started looking at colleges and I, I, I applied to a bunch of colleges and got into every single one. <laughs> I was like, oh, look at me. And then I was like, oh, I really don't want to go to a big city and I don't really want to be that far away from home, but I wanted to be at least a little bit away from home. And UC Davis fit the bill entirely. It was like a good science school and it was just far enough from home that I wouldn't see my family all the time, but I could if I wanted to. <laughs> and it wasn't a big city. It was a nice small city and it ended up being a wonderful place for me to go to school as an undergraduate. And I got my degree in wildlife fisheries and conservation biology. And it was at UC Davis that I found out about a program that is amazing called Rumble, the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. That's a field site in the middle of the Rocky Mountains near Crested Butte, Colorado. And it's a six week, six or eight week field of study in the summertime in the mountains and you're hiking around at 10,000 feet and learning about things. And that's where I got into birds. Mm. So I was really interested in birds and bird behavior as a result of that experience that I had that summer. And I came back to UC Davis for my final year of study there. And I was like, okay, I want to work with birds. And I looked around and I ended up finding a woman named Nicola Clayton, who had just gotten a professorship at UC Davis, and she was setting up her lab, and she worked in the field of bird learning and memory, and she gave me an internship. And so I started working with her birds there, and it turned out she didn't just work on the behavior, she also worked on the brains. And so that's when I was like, oh, yeah, you can take the brains out of the birds and be focused on the brains, too. <laughs> Yay. Yay. And, that, and that's really where that year I really got into brain behavior. 
how they interplay with each other and they feed back where behavior affects the brain, the brain affects behavior. And it's not only in birds, it's in all animals. And so it was just really this, I fell in love with the concept of how organisms interact with their world and how the world feeds back to influence the development and the functioning of those organisms. And so... I'm learning a lot here because, I mean, I'm just going to try and pick out a few insights that I got there. <laughs> and one, which I think is really compelling and maybe familiar, is the idea that if you wanted to instill in a child the love of science, does it really begin with nature, maybe? Does it begin with just being around the natural world so you can expose kids to, like, how amazing things are? at a young age. And two, which is more a bit of a bummer for me, is that the social pressures are working against people in embracing science. And maybe in particular women, I don't know. But it seems like, you know, th there's not a lot of positive feedback, at least amongst your peer groups in these groups. So mm -hmm. I guess it, it was a challenge for you. And also what I think is interesting as it relates to you is that you, from a very young age, kind of found your niche. You loved science, but you also were such an entertainer and loved to communicate. So clearly, as you circled around your career, you ended up kind of integrating both those things. So can we just address that? <laughs> well, first, let's talk about your kind of like your young professional science career. You were studying the brain and behavior and the interplay between them both. How would you kind of like provide some synthesis of, of your graduate work, your postdoctoral work? What was your focus, your research focus in your scientific career? So my research focus, uh, the area of the brain that I looked at uh, is, was the avian hippocampus. And it's the area of the brain responsible for the consolidation of memory from short-term memory to long-term memories in the brain. Um, and I was interested uh, in how animals' experiences lead to long-term memories and whether or not there are certain patternings in the brain that lead to certain behaviors. So I looked at things like food caching and migration in different species of birds to determine uh, one of the questions in the lab was, how does experience affect the hippocampus of the brain? And uh, my advisor, Nikki, Nicola Clayton, she had determined that in several species of food caching birds that experience even a single experience of caching a seed, hiding a seed, that one experience led to an explosive growth of new cells hmm. within the hippocampus, that the hippocampus started to grow. What's the why there? Like if you had to connect the dots. So the, the working hypothesis was always that the brain needed to prepare itself for the later need. Mm. Like the vocal system where birds learn and their vocal pathways get connected and form during practice, it's the same way for young birds who are of species that cache food that have to hide the food to survive on it over the winter or into the spring months. And so they need to practice and get the brain ready for that eventual survival need. And if they don't get the practice, then the brain never learns that it has to actually be ready for this thing. 
I guess in the field, it's a great model for a great way of dissecting kind of because that's a, a clear like not reward, but there's a, a biological impetus, a survival mm-hmm. impetus there. But yeah. it gives you some insight also into how, you know, you can it's well known that, you know, when you when you ex- experiential knowledge as a young person is really compounded in a way that's different from an adult. Is that part of your, I know you did the birds because you love the birds, but when you talk about applying the knowledge from these kind of studies, is it directly related to like how humans learn, I assume? Absolutely. The brain is an energy dependent organism and that the body and the brain and, and the brain especially is very, uses a lot of energy, right? So for the body and the brain to have an efficiency level for performing and for survival, there's going to be trade-offs. And do you invest energy into developing this energy-sucking organ or a little part of it, or do you not? And if the body is telling the brain, okay, we're going to need this thing later, then yes, you need to put energy into developing it out and putting more neural material there. But if you're not going to be using it, then cut down on your energy needs. Don't develop it out. You don't need that area to grow and be using all that energy. Yeah, I see. I guess and over the course of evolution, it's, I guess some birds, how you become a bird that caches seeds or go from being a bird to not being a mm-hmm. bird that caches seeds, this is kind of based on whether or not right. extrinsic forces as well, but how yeah. you gain that habitually, how you integrate that into a, a species brain. Yeah is through these mechanisms. The behavior dictates the physiology or the anatomy or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, and we know that in humans that the more you practice something, the more myelination occurs. Your brain develops new connections and will, you know, dendrites grow out and connect with other neurons. As you learn new things, new pathways are created to allow that behavior to become better and more efficient. And so we know that if you don't use certain things, if you don't do certain things, there's atrophy, that Mm. the brain retracts those connections. In the brains of depressed people, connections are retracted. And the brain also makes use of things in different ways. So in people who are amputees, areas of the brain that used to be used for one function, the brain goes, okay, we're not doing that anymore, but I need that. And so I'm going to use that material for this new thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so it's always this kludgy cost-benefit trade-off for how do you use the material in the most efficient way possible. I guess it's so meta because the idea, everyone has this kind of not predestined idea of your genes and behavior, especially with lower, not lower, but other animals besides humans, where we appreciate that human behavior is outside of whatever, our biological restrictions. But it's so much more complicated than that, right? You know, all the diversity of species we have, the behavior, the lives they live dictate the course of the species and the evolution of those species. So yeah. it's kind of, it's more than just bird brains, right, Kiki? We're talking it about is. big ideas here, and there's any bigger idea yeah. than the brain. So tell me, <laughs> oh, no. you're in science, yes. all right? And you're doing your thing there, and then you decided maybe it wasn't the best path for you. Can you explain, was it kind of being, I guess, disillusioned with science or did you find something that was more passionate about? Can you talk about how you left the traditional science path? It's a bittersweet story, actually. So in parallel to my graduate study, I had started This Week in Science, 
as a radio show at the UC Davis campus radio station. And I'd been doing campus radio as a music DJ for years, but around the time that I started grad school, my friends and I were all talking about these cool stories in science, all this research that was happening. And I realized that there was nothing other than Science Friday on the radio, and there was nothing on our local campus station. And I was like, why don't we do a show? We should do a radio show about science. And so we proposed it, and they said yes. And then This Week in Science was born. And then I started grad school, and it's like... Oh, okay, I have these parallel lives, these things that I'm interested in. And, you know, that the radio thing, it was kind of my creative outlet where I got to focus on lots of different areas of science. And then my graduate study got narrower and narrower and narrower, focusing me into that little area of the bird brain, you know, that funnel. And so I had these, you know, the one part of my brain that was learning how to communicate and reaching out and touching all of this science and the other part of my brain that's just like, ah. (laughs) But I was doing that. And then I got to the point of my oral exams. I had finished all my coursework, was ready to start just straight research. I was doing my oral exams. And Dr. Clayton came to me and she said, I am accepting a job in England at Cambridge University, and I'm going to move there. Oh, my. Yeah. (laughs) Bye-bye. And I was excited. I was like, oh, awesome. I'll go to Cambridge. That'd be cool. But <laughs> she wasn't providing any resources to help anybody in the lab uh, come with her. So yeah, we were all left kind of high and dry and kind of went, I don't know what to do. And so I took a leave of absence from my graduate studies for a year. I took my orals. So I was PhD, ABD, <laughs> all the <laughs> dissertation. And I went, okay, I'm just going to take some time off. And I had started dating my now husband, and he was living in San Francisco. And I went, I'm going to go live in San Francisco for a year. I'm going to take a year off. And I got a temp, a part-time, I got a temp position at University of California, San Francisco in the Department of Pharmacy as like a secretarial assistant. I was the worst ever. I made so many mistakes. I was just not paying attention. I'm like, Mim, yeah, sure, I'll copy off all these things and oh my god you weren't born to do that my girl oh i was not i hated it so much i feel really badly about my (laughs) the work i did there i was like oh i'm so sorry (laughs) my heart wasn't in it and i had moved to san francisco and i kind of kept calling in and doing the radio show over the phone because my co-host at the time was still in davis and so be showtime and i'd get on the phone and I'd yeah, call can we, it in. I just want to put it out there. I don't want to age you or anything. <laughs> there was but this no wasn't like there were no Skype, no. there was no podcast. You no. were doing a rate like FM radio or AM radio, even. I mean, this is it was FM radio, but there was no Skype like we're using now. No, I there was I had to call yeah, it, wasn't it in. Easy. I, I it called wasn't it in easy on a phone, a phone, phone that was on a desk. On a rotary. <laughs> a rotary phone. phone. <laughs> <laughs> Now it had buttons. We did that button pushing phone era. Used Morse code. Yeah. And then I got a job at the UCSF lab of neuropsychopharmacology, which was awesome. I got to be a researcher in this lab that did human addictive drug studies. You know, we were the lab that put out ads in the back of the Bay Guardian that said, are you addicted to cocaine? Do you want to get paid <laughs> to take cocaine? <laughs> 
Yeah. Wow. And so we would get, you know, bring people into the lab and do various manipulations on various addictive drug substances and treatments for those drugs. And Let me that was a fascinating what kind little of, what kind of time. People, is that like sketchy when you see these people come in? Are they like total degenerate drug addicts? No. Or like drug seekers? Some of them were. Some of them were homeless. A lot of people were just, you know, they were either grad students or in between jobs. Or there's somebody who, you know, it just, okay, I'll try that. There was a real, a real diversity of the people that came in. Yeah. You would be surprised. It was not, you would think that maybe it's only a certain type of person, but it was not. It definitely was not. It was pretty interesting. And, you know, it was to meet all the people that came in and to get to talk with them because they would be, in many of the studies, they were inpatient studies and they would have to go onto the research floor of the university hospital and stay in the hospital for, you know, a week or several days. And so, you know, you'd be going in and interacting with this person kind of for an ongoing basis and got to hear some fascinating life experiences and interact with some really neat people. Neat. Yeah, it was very cool. And in that process, I got to meet Sasha Shulgin as a result of that. He is the father of enactogen drug, empathogen drug study, hallucinogenic drug study in the United States. And he's an amazing dude. He always come in in his Hawaiian shirts. And it was really neat looking at him interacting with the lead of the lab that I was in because he was very much a starched shirt kind of guy, but they were both studying addictive drugs or hallucinogenic, like brain modulating drugs, but from different perspectives. And so it was really neat seeing them. But that is a sideline. I did that for a while. And then in the process was like, I just can't do my radio show anymore. I can't keep calling it in. And there was another friend in Davis who said that he wanted to do the show And so it was like, okay, I've got a replacement. And so these two guys could go and do This Week in Science and keep doing it on the radio. And I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop. And I'm just going to do this lab thing. And I'm just going to live in San Francisco and work. And I got really sad. And I realized that the thing that I had always loved about science and studying science was going to conferences and explaining my work was talking with other people about their work and then trying to explain it to other people. When I was working as a TA and getting to interact with students and talk to them about research and science and how it worked and when I got to do my radio show, those were the things that made me happiest and I wasn't doing any of them anymore. Right. You were funneled in alone at the bench. Yeah. And I was just like, all of a sudden it hit me and it was like, so this, you know, losing my research My graduate lab was sad, but in a sense, it really made me realize what was important to me. And so I went back to UC Davis and I found a couple of researchers who they they took pity on me. Everyone took pity on me. And uh, they said, we'll let you into the lab. We'll let you do some research. And I told them that I didn't want to do it with the goal of becoming a researcher, that I actually wanted to do it just with the goal of gaining my PhD and full experience of doing the science and the scientific process so that I could gain some credibility with the public in talking about science. And so I left with that goal of, I want that doctorate so I can say, look at me, I'm a doctorate. I know science. Trust me, I'm a doctor. (laughs) Legitimacy. Yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, I was going to ask, like, that's so scary because you devote so much time to something. And, you know, in America, 
that's the whole thing. It's all about career. In our generation in particular, I feel like, oh, you have to be ambitious and you got to finish. And when, what are you going to do with a PhD? And then once you get the PhD, you say, oh, well, I'm not going to do what everyone else does with a PhD. That can be a scary thing. But for you, it seems like the decision made itself, right? I mean, okay. you were doing what made you happy. And I think that's tough for a lot of young scientists because they start doing science kind of as a default because that's what they've been doing and they don't really know yeah when you start for me at least when i started doing science it was kind of just i mean after postdoctoral science it was kind of like because that was the next phase it's and i didn't next even know step. if i loved it i didn't even know if i loved it and luckily for me i did but a question there that you could help out these young scientists who are coming out of grad school is there i guess self-assessment that you did? Was there kind of like a pro-cons? How would you advise someone young and who's about to start a career? Because, you know, my mother said this and it was so scary. She was like, yeah, when you graduate college, you, whatever your major is, you can still do whatever you want. But once you go to grad school, like you kind of got to follow through. So, I mean, for all those students who maybe have some doubt about whether or not they're doing the right thing, what would be your advice to them? Well, if you have a doubt that you're doing the right thing, try and figure out what things feel like the right thing. The other side of that is to talk to people who are doing things that you think you might like to do. Like I reached out and I spoke with a bunch of science writers. I ended up talking with people who their career was writing about and talking about science. And they gave me advice and they were just, and everybody was very giving. All you have to do is reach out and talk to people. And more often than not, people will respond in a positive manner and help you out. I mean, they're not going to tell you how exactly to do it, but like right now, you know, sharing experiences is something that's a very human thing to do. And for me, getting that lowdown on the science writing career from science writers was very helpful. I also started going to conferences that I thought were pretty cool. So by this time I'd started podcasting and I was like, I'm going to go to a podcasting conference. And I went and I met a whole bunch of other podcasters. And I ended up meeting this guy, Alex Lindsay, who did a podcast called This Week in Tech. And we were like, oh my gosh, you're This Week in Tech. I'm This Week in Science. And then we got together and started doing video work. And so that led to like this whole new uh, chapter of what I do and how I do it. And uh, because of going out and reaching out and networking and meeting new people, I ended up finding my path and really finding and honing this thing that I love to do. You have to put yourself out there. You can't just sit at home and go, woe is me. I'm not doing what I want to do. You have to go after it. The path is not going to find you, right? Yeah, it's not going to find you. But you need to step onto the path yourself and do what you think you're going to do. And, you know, as for that question of, like you said, it's just grad school, then postdoc. These are it's the steps of what you do, right? It's just like you get onto that funnel and you keep doing it or you're on the roller coaster and you just can't get off. But by the way, it's not like all these other professions where there's a place for everybody. You stay on the yeah. path. It's like a path with limited outlets, you exactly. know? Exactly. You and get on that path and there's only enough, you know, popcorn for a few. I don't know why I used popcorn there. <laughs> But you might want to consider, are there, from what you're doing, what are the skills that you have? 
a lot of people go into data analysis. Like if you're a researcher who a lot of your stuff is computational analysis, statistics, you have a, a saleable skill there that is going to be incredibly valuable. I met somebody who was working at Nielsen, you know, the ratings agency, doing data analysis for them. They took their, their statistical career and like ended up in this media-related field doing statistical data analysis. There are other people who really like the communication aspect. If you find yourself wanting to write all the time, write more, make time for that. And there are conferences, there are organizations, National Association of Science Writers, amazing organization to get yourself started. There, I did a fellowship through the AAAS called the AAAS Mass Media Fellowship. And that's where I got a chance to work in a media organization and learn the skill of science writing for the public. It's a fellowship that is dedicated to getting grad students and postdocs to understand how to work with the media. And a lot of people now are doing that fellowship as a stepping stone to get into a science writing, science communications career. There are so many different options out there. It's just a matter of not being scared, trying to get past the concept of, oh, this is all I can do, or I don't know what else I can do. You can do a lot. It's just a matter of looking. That's a great point. The education that you get in graduate school can prepare you for a lot of things outside of science. Yeah. So, all right, you know, we do this with all the science talks. We're talking about alternative careers, but I think the same question is really well suited to this format as well. What's next? What's the vision for the future in this career you have as a science communicator? Where do you want to be or move towards or what do you have going on right now that you think is going to make you even happier than you are now? We all know what a happy person you are. Yeah. So I love the creative aspect of producing podcasts, of making videos, telling science stories. And, you know, my goal, I've actually started a boutique production agency. It's called Broader Impacts Productions. And the goal of my little company is to help scientists and science organizations tell their science stories and to have broader impacts for their research. So I want to work with scientists like you, Dalen, or <laughs> anybody out there, really, to be able to, do you want to create a video for your lab? Are you interested in figuring out how to maybe do a video abstract? Are you interested in doing a podcast or figuring out how you can use media to share your science with the public? That's what I want to help you do. That's you. That's what you do already. I think it's really a question of just getting the scientists to, you know, scientists classically, they're so locked in on what they're doing. And they maybe all the, if it's not like, single cell sequencing or whatever the next generation actual science technology is, they maybe don't recognize how the culture of science can change. And a big part of that is communicating science. We all know how awful scientists are at communicating their research to the public. So I think it's a great need, yeah. which is going to certainly have broader impact. Tell me a little bit detail about it. It's you and, and a production company. I mean, you as a production company, you actually provide the resources. Yeah, so I either can provide training workshops on how to do these things or actually come in and consult with you to help you do these things if you want to do them yourselves. Or if you have the idea, but you don't know how to do it, I can come in and do it. And so those are the three legs of my platform here. 
of my production agency is really trying to uh, be a resource for researchers who want to communicate. Tell me this doesn't mean you're going to leave the stem cell podcast. <laughs> no, I love doing this. <laughs> All right, rest assured, people, she'll still have time for the podcast. I mean, come on. So this is the thing. As I get older, more mature, you know, it's I have these skills and I want to help share them. And I think I can do that through my production company. But at the same time, I still love talking about science and sharing it. And so being a part of a podcast like this is, for me, this is like one of my joys. I love doing this every couple of weeks. I do too. And it has no small part to do with you. It's, I think, really inspirational to talk to someone. I love this new series of doing careers outside of traditional science because it is inspiring. If for no other reason, because I, knowing you, and I hope people will trust me in this, you're such a happy person. You're so satisfied with what you're doing and excited about it. And, you know, when I talk to scientists in the most part, they're, they're not always so psyched. You know, they're always kind of like bummed out about one thing or the other. And I think a lot of that has to do with your happiness and your success at it is creating a niche for yourself. So I think it's a great inspiration to people who may have doubts about the traditional path. Have the courage yeah. to do what you love and you will be happy. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. I have gotten happier the more I have done the thing that I want to do. When I've been stretched and doing other things that are not really the thing I'm enjoying, I, I'm like, ah, I don't really want to do that. I'm not happy. <laughs> I think I'm just going to get happier, happier and happier. <laughs> so. I'm scared. I'm afraid to see a happier Kiki. But hey, I invite it. Yeah. And uh, I think everyone else could be a little bit happier if you follow your heart, follow your dream. Kiki as a model, it's a good one. Yeah, it's important, though, also to understand who your supporters are. And to know that you've got a support system, there was a point in time, I mean, doing one podcast doesn't bring in a lot of money. And so that, you know, <laughs> there was a period of time where I was like looking at my husband going, is that all right? <laughs> is it okay if I'm just doing this? <laughs> so he was a big supporter for a long time. And I've gotten to a point, I've built my business, I've built this thing that I do. And in no small part, because of the fact that I had him as a support. I think that's absolutely the case, but I think it has more to do with you. I give you ha! all the Thank you. I love yes, your, your husband. I deserve He's it. Dude. He's a good dude. <laughs> but it's tough. You know, again, it takes a lot of courage to do something that nobody's doing. And what we ought to be doing is creating more room for non-traditional science careers. And I hope totally. we can do something to make a little room for that. Oh, let's Kiki. do it. Yes. You've been quite a good guest. I mean, I would say you've got to come back on the show soon if you weren't coming back on the show in a couple of weeks. But I'd love to talk to you again. You know, we'll have to see, we'll have to check in on your science career, right. your non-traditional science communication career, you know, in bits and pieces as, as we move on. Thank you for talking about yourself. I know how hard it is. You're welcome. Thanks for taking the time to be interested. I'm always interested. <laughs> All right. So that was it. And I have to say, I'm happy. I'm inspired. <laughs> I'm talking to my friend Kiki, but there's still room for anger. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, there's yeah. always room, right, Kiki? <laughs> so, as the proxy host today, I'm going to tell you the rant is our chance. You know, the old, good old SCP rant. It's our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Kiki, I'm not going to ask you to lead off the rant because you just finished telling me how happy you are. You're a real 
happy, happy. <laughs> Pissing me off. So happy. Let me just frown for once. We're going to rant today about why the F. I have to say, I'm in Europe right now. I don't know if I said that. And I did say that in the lead. And what I've noticed is that everybody speaks English. Why is it that English is the default language? I mean, does it make sense? Is it because we're so bad at speaking other languages? What do you think? I don't know. It's historical precedent for sure. But yeah, oh my goodness. I have a story from years ago when I was visiting Paris. You know, and the French, the French, they love their language. You know, if you try and put an English word into the French language, like everybody goes into uproar. They're like, no, no, you cannot say le weekend. It is not le weekend. C'est le fin de la semaine. <laughs> it, adding English to the French, like they are very into their wonderful, pure French language. And like, all right, I've taken French in college. I can speak French. And I was excited to go to Paris and speak French. And I went into a bookstore and I went up to the lovely woman who was selling books. And I said, avez-vous le petit prince? And I'm like, you know, do you have the little prince? I wanted to buy this book in French. She just looked at me with this blank face. I mean, here I am putting myself on the line. And she looks at me, she's like, would you like to speak English? That was terrible. <laughs> Which the subtext is, your French is pretty whack. <laughs> Can I tell you, you know what? I'm shifting gears. The rant should be about the French. The French, you're great, but I'm so sick of the French. I have a similar story, except on the flip side, I was coming back. I was on the Eurorail after college going from UK to France. I met a dude on the train who told me I only needed two words. I didn't speak any French. He said, you only need two words. Uwe and Java. And he said, that's I want and where is. And so I was like, all right, not in that order. Not in that order. I was like, okay, great. I'm ready to go. I went into the first thing I did in Paris is I went to a shop to get a sandwich. I was starving. I'm looking at this delicious ham and cheese sandwich on a baguette there. And I go, I point at it and I say, Uwe, la sandwich. (laughs) And this French lady who knew exactly what I wanted just looked at me and said, blah, 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 pointing at it. And I said, yeah, yeah, oué, la sandwich, thinking that she was understanding me. And she just kept on going, kept me on the hook. Finally, I had to leave. She knew what I was saying. But of course, I was saying, where is that sandwich? Where is that sandwich? As I was pointing at it. Le sandwich dans le table. It's there, <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> Needless to say, I didn't get the sandwich, and I left Paris within two hours. The point being, ah, I'm ranting they, about the French. They now, ran you okay? out of France. They ran me out of France because they're so unforgiving. And you know, I guess that's why English is the default language because we're all idiots. It started as a rant about us, but now I'm concluding the French. No, I hate you, French. No, pretty much. It's, it's, I, think I hate it, us. It's the Americans. Because we can't be, yes. most of the time, we can't be bothered to speak other languages well enough yes. <laughs> to That's make it fair. even passable. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I hate Americans probably more than I hate the French. But that woman who didn't give me my ham sandwich, I hate you, lady. I hope you're listening to this right now. Uwe, you. Because I'm going <laughs> to smack you when I see you. <laughs> All right. That's the rant. That's the show. We did it. We did it. Episode 105. We're kicking off our non-traditional science careers. We'll have multiple installments of this in the future. And I think we let off with a great one. My co-host and great friend. Thank you. Kiki, the bird lady. (laughs) The bird lady. That's right. 
And if anybody calls you a bird brain, take it as a compliment. And be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. You can take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com also. And we'll be back for episode 106 because that does it for this episode. Thanks, Dalen. Thank you, Kiki. That was great. <laughs>